Podcasting is an astonishing amount of work, so I rely on some great tools to make it easier. One of my staples is Zencaster. They provide a crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. I love that it records separate audio and video tracks for the guests and for me so that everything comes through really clearly, even if there's a lag in the internet. Plus, there's a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews. Since I'm often recording from remote places, I love that it's easy to record audio only as well as audio and video. It's super easy to use and there's nothing to download aside from your recordings. My guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to zen.ai slash canine conservationists to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Pro. So again, that's zen.ai slash canine conservationists for 30% off. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I get to talk to Sarah Owings from CyberDog Online Training about clean mechanics and clean training for training and working with high-drive working dogs. This conversation was really fun. I had a bunch of questions and topics in mind, and we went way off the rails, way down some rabbit holes. We're already planning a part two. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Um, For those of you who don't know Sarah Owings, she is a Karen Pryor Academy certified training partner who specializes in learning-centric applications of behavioral principles and is passionate about transforming the lives of challenging dogs as well as the lives of the people that care for them. As an international speaker and regular contributor to online training forums, Sarah is known for her innovative approaches to tough behavior problems and her compassionate and insightful teaching. Sarah has written for Clean Run Magazine on topics such as stimulus control, release cues, and toy-related cues. Her current passions include reframing concept li- concepts like impulse control and encouraging trainers to... Im- embrace a philosophy of brave learning. She is a member of the Clicker Expo faculty, an instructor for CyberScent Online, as well as a tutor for Tromplo. Formerly an advisor for the Glendale Humane Society in Los Angeles, she has also done consults and workshops for the behavior team at the Marin Humane in Northern California. Sarah is an avid nosework competitor, currently competing at the elite level with her Labrador retriever, Tucker. Tucker was the recipient of the Harry Award in 2015 and has the distinction of titling at each level of NACSW, um, meaning that he's done everything from his ORT, Odor Recognition Trial, through Nosework 3 Elite without a single miss. Holy cow. In sniffing dog sports, he has won high in trial in both advanced and excellent divisions and has learned a high in trial at their top iron dog level. Tucker's trained final response for Nosework, a hover freeze at source, was taught with a Markle signal following clicker training principles. Wow, you can see why I'm excited to talk to Sarah, right? Um, and I'm really, really excited to share this interview with you. But first, we do have to share our weekly science highlight. This week, we're looking at a paper written by Denise Karp that was published in Nature, titled Detecting Small and Cryptic Mammals by Combining Thermography and a Wildlife Detection Dog. The question in this um, paper, which actually was published in Scientific Reports through Nature, um, is asking, what are the best methods for detecting small and cryptic animals? And in this case, looking at brown hair leverets, and a leveret is a baby hair. Um, Fun fact, baby bunnies are called kittens. 
This paper is important because the successful management and conservation of an endangered species requires an understanding of the species' ecological needs throughout its lifestyle, and traditional detection methods like spotlighting, line transect counts, box trapping, and nest searching are inadequate for brown hair leverets. These leverets are super well camouflaged, inactive during the day, and the mothers don't provide a protective cover like nests for their young, so you can't just find their nests. Thermal imaging cameras can be helpful because they use emitted heat, infrared radiation, instead of visible light to create an image, so they're effective even when the animal is camouflaged or it's dark outside. This study compared three methods to detect brown hair leverets, a handheld thermal imaging camera, an airborne thermal imaging camera, and a wildlife detection dog. By the end of the study, 65 individual leverets from 41 different litters were detected, caught, and radio tagged. Ultimately, the choice of detection method should be based on the area's vegetation characteristics, such as height and density, as thermal imaging devices can be obstructed by vegetation. The handheld thermal imaging camera is the most efficient method for searching large areas with low or no vegetation cover in a flat landscape with a dense road network. The thermal drone was best used in areas for up to medium vegetation cover, and the detection dog is best used in dense vegetative cover. The the detection dog was the least limited by weather conditions such as rain, wind, humidity, or direct sunlight, or by the vegetation type or rugged terrain. So if you're dealing with any of those adverse conditions, the detection dog may be your best bet. Plus, the time a dog needed to find one of the litter was lower than that of either of the two thermal imaging devices. However, it appeared that very young leverets, so baby bunnies or baby hares under one week old, was only detectable by the dog in a very short range, such as like 20 to 50 centimeters. And the trained dog had difficulty locating the source of the scent, sometimes passing the leveret within a meter. The authors also noted that an off-leash pet dog and a fox walked within three to five meters of a pair of leverets without noticing them. So their camouflage when they're really young is very, very good. Therefore, the detection, do- the detection of leverets requires the dog to thoroughly search an area so the, do- the area is covered by a detection dog is rather small. Um, the older leverets were easier for the dog to detect, and for live tar- targets such as this, um, they did note that it is crucial to use a dog with low or c- very controllable p- prey drive because you are asking this dog to get very close to very young baby animals. The authors kind of close with the idea that combining all three approaches allows detection in all sorts of vegetative cover or habitat types, which increases the possibilities for data collection and results in an unbiased and balanced data set. Um, And they suggest that these methods may be applied to study other small animals or cryptic animals. A couple things to note. Um, Aerial thermal imaging technology is not yet optimized and probably will improve. Um, The data in this paper were collected between 2013 and 2015, so aerial thermal imaging now in 2022 is probably already quite a bit better. They also only used one dog in the study, and they noted that was to minimize the stress on the live target animals that were being used. Um, But that limits the the ability to generalize the results. Um, We talk about this with almost every single paper we look at, and the performance is variable between different dogs and different handlers. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Sarah Owings. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Sarah. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So why don't we start out with the why? Why do mechanics of your reward and your handling matter? Um, And especially when we're thinking about working with maybe a higher drive or extremely high drive dog. Uh, Well, I really think about everything in terms of clarity of information or clarity of feedback, uh, because that's what shapes all learning. Um, That's going on all the time, whether or not trainers are doing 
anything at all or not, right? Or, you know, rabbits teach dogs great skills by, you know, being the cue for the freeze and then the run. Um, But trainers are giving cues all the time. And if those cues are noisy or inconsistent, then you're basically giving your animal a different information at different times. So it's kind of like saying, uh, here, are the, here's, uh, here are your test questions, and what you studied yesterday doesn't work today anymore. Um, and if you do that too often, especially with those dogs with that label of high drive, uh, you get behaviors, um, which sometimes when I meet these dogs, I'm like, you are right. This is confusing. You should be yelling, you know, but you'll get the barking. You'll get the mouthiness. You'll get the the dog that just says, heck it, I'm just taking the reinforcer and I don't care if your skin is attached to it, um, which I've worked with all of these kinds of dogs. So that's just what I feel like if you are training something, it's your responsibility to just constantly be clear with that information. And that takes not only a lot of uh, skill and practice, but awareness, um, a constant refinement and reevaluation of your skills. Um, and it's kind of never ending. So that's kind of my first answer to that question. It's a great question to start with. Yeah, yeah, making sure we've got people on board. And you already also answered my next question, which is, you know, some of the problems that may come up when we do have unclear training. Is there anything else you wanted to add as far as like, ooh, we might be dealing with poor mechanics or messy mechanics if this is what we're seeing out of our dog? Uh, definitely that's the first thing I look for. Mm-hmm. So before I blame the dog, before I say, oh, the dog has got impulse control problems or is spoiled or before I go to those kind of labels, um, the first thing I look for and not just the trainer, I'm not like bad trainer. I don't mean that. But the first thing I look for is are, is the dog and the trainer, are they communicating consistently? I mean, that's kind of what I look mm-hmm. for. First of all, can you get a series of consistent responses, period? Uh, And sometimes some of these behaviors, the ones we label uh, difficult, they were learned a while ago, and now they are cued by the whole training environment. So you'll just like, for example, the dog I adopted a while ago, um, typical Labrador, in a situation where someone is holding a ball, Mm-hmm. He will scream. I mean, very long duration screaming. Um, <laughs> and and then I, what my big aha about that was that's a very consistent response. Like mm-hmm. it's not a behavior I want, but I could I could bet you a hundred dollars every time I hold up a ball, I'm gonna get this barking. So yeah. that learning got locked in, you know, seven, mm-hmm. so in a weird way. But when you want to change that. Um, you have to be very, very good at not just changing your own patterns, but also changing um, the context where those problem behaviors happen. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I dealt with that with him was let's learn how to stand quietly and wait for things in a quiet room rather than the park where, right. And then, and, but in that situation, now I'm reteaching a skill. The skill was wait until I release you. Wait until I release you. That's where my, this is brand new training. My job was to be really clear and very consistent with what this new rule was, which is if you stand still and wait, 
this is guaranteed. I'm going to release you to this food or I'm going to, and that had to be split down into tiny baby steps for him. And, but, and that's where I had to just slowly build it. Um, and that's, that's where it really mattered. Does that make sense? So if I were inconsistent during that time, he's going to revert back to the behaviors that were working. Um, that, that screen barking is very, very strong, already learned. Um, and so that's kind of, so I look for two things. I look for, are you trying to teach something brand new that the animal's not getting it? And then you get all this frustration or is this a long standing problem? Basically something the animal has already learned. And when I see that happening, I'll say, we got to change the context, break it all down and reteach, reteach your new, your new patterns. Um, so those, there's sort of two different aspects to that answer. I hope it's not too complicated sounding. No, I don't think so. And I think, you know, when, when you're telling a story of the, this lab, I, I think a lot of these uh, several dogs that I've worked with, and I know this is a pretty common thing where it's, they're okay when you first pull the toy out and they've been taught to wait and then you can throw it and you can play with them. But when you're going to put it away, is when you start getting the dog jumping up and biting at your shirt or trying to pull it out from the toy from out from your armpit or whatever it is and one of the things that really strikes me there is you know it's so much about you know as you said yeah the clarity of the communication of like helping the dog understand how and when games end um helping them know that that doesn't have to be the end of the world and then being really consistent with how you do that and ensuring that I'm sure most of the dogs who do that behavior really, really consistently have been reinforced for it inconsistently at some point, whether it's through someone just giving up and giving them the toy or them mugging someone and getting the toy successfully. Um, And actually most of the dogs I know who have done that quote unquote, the worst, (laughs) the dogs that were kind of scary to work with, um, or almost like you're both dreading the end of the game because it's going to be so difficult to get that toy back and get that toy away. Um, A lot of those were dogs that had had multiple handlers and were switching around from multiple people. Um, And I think that is where you can get that kind of that construct of this dog is going to test you. Um, And I think... I don't know. We can we can go down that rabbit hole or not. <laughs> um, well, yeah, definitely. Um, that's definitely true. Is um, we the the official term for that is a it's an extinction process that's not finished. That's the official. So what that means is something that has been working for that animal suddenly stops working. You know, and then that animal escalates and escalates, and then it works because mm-hmm. of the escalation. And now you've actually locked in the escalation part. Exactly. Right? It, it, start to, it usually starts kind of, you know, like a little nipping or a little bit of fussing yeah. or whining. All My younger sudden, dog will, down. like, if I'm holding the Frisbee down, you know, and I'm, like, walking with the Frisbee at nose level, he'll occasionally kind of go for it. And I can see how easily that would escalate from if he ever got it there and then I'm trying to stick it in my armpit. And then once or twice he pulls it out from my armpit. Then I'm just, you know, not intentionally, but I'm teaching this sort of persistence. <laughs> and yeah. um, and we want persistence. That's the thing. These, these dogs mm-hmm. that are doing these jobs, and that's the other thing with my lab. When I met him, I'm like, 
you are gold. I mean, of course, that's why you you go to the shelters and look for the crazy dogs, because if you give this dog a mission, he's going to finish the mission. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and that uh, that's a very cool thing. And that's what I love to do as well is shift the flip that over and go, well, this is your superpower. So how yeah. can we negotiate over this very important resource so that I don't mm-hmm. get hurt? Um, and so mm-hmm. you feel better. Um, yeah. And I did a lot of work with this dog. I also learned the hard way that tucking under the armpit is not a cue to not take it. Um, I thought <laughs> that was a clear cue to not, you know, yeah. my mouth is under my armpit. Um, but I actually, I got uh, grabbed and thrown to the ground um, oh, with a dog ouch. with no out. He had no out. So... <clears throat> I kind of felt like this is this this lab I'm talking about. I kind of felt like he didn't even see me there anymore. It was just a toy floating, mm-hmm. and he just grabbed yeah. like, all of this part of my you know. This is I'm grabbing my below my yeah, like you're packed, and just flung me to the ground and then pulled and then pulled oh, and pulled in my head, and it was pretty bad. Were you okay? <laughs> I I I got a good. I it drew blood. I mean, it hurt. Um, yeah. And that's when I, I really realized. And what had happened, this is a good example. Um, I thought we had resu- you know, worked all this stuff out. And then I decided to put a contingency on that toy. And we were working on healing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I'll put it under my arm. And I thought these were baby steps. I go, if you give me one step of healing, I'm going to mark you and give you that toy. Mm-hmm. So one step, okay. Two steps, he just said, I'm taking it. I'm just yeah. taking it. Like, and, yeah, uh, and that's there. another, example. I see it. I've got it. <laughs> and that means I, you know, that's not his, we would easily blame him, mm-hmm. but I think I would consider that a, a, a miscommunication between the two of us about what my goals were, what I was actually trying to teach him. He shouldn't have been learning that behavior with a toy reinforcer at that stage because yeah. it's, He's just not able to think that way in that mm-hmm. situation. Um, and I should have known better, but that's the example though. Usually the dogs will get blamed or punished or called defiant or dominant um, in those situations. But yeah. it's our job to find the context where the behavior we want is easier. And usually with these toy dogs, it's like just no choice for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes food yeah. is less exciting, but no toys for a little while. Let's just learn how to talk to each other. Like what, what, Mm -hmm. what is a marker signal? Can you offer me behavior? Do you know how to make this game work for you? And sometimes it's better to do training that is not your important training, right? Not your, not your conservation work, not your Mm -hmm. detection, you know, just learn the game. Yeah. Learn how to talk to each other. Yeah. That, but you know, but think about it. You can't do it for toys to start with because toys are a whole cue for a whole suite of behaviors that are really difficult. So yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm I'm wondering, but I've learned a lot from this particular dog. Um, and the coolest thing with him, the coolest, my favorite moment was um, I teach a, an indication for uh, amateur scent work for. Um, where he has to freeze, he has to hold his nose directly, uh, precisely on source and hold it there until he's released. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And the day he could do that very delicate, precise work to a toy reinforcer was the day that I was like, yay! Because all that that thrill, and he would hold his entire body still, like basically it kind of looks like he's trying to balance his nose on a on a little tiny target. Mm-hmm. And he could do it, but that took a lot of work. It took so much oh work. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Um, but that's the de- that's the level of precision that I wanted to go for, and I wanted to use mm-hmm. toys because he really he cared about he them loves so toys. much. Yeah, I wasn't yeah. gonna not let him do toys. So but right, and while. even and you know even when we're dealing with a dog who you know maybe in our concentrated training sessions they're not getting toys right now that doesn't mean they're never getting toys so we still need to learn how to um yeah how to teach an out and teach them to wait and let you you know the difference between tugging and throwing um or tugging and retrieving um in the toy presentation all of that um it still matters even if you're not trying to do multiple repetitions in a row in your training with toys which i think a lot of us you know both of my dogs are very, very highly toy motivated, and both of them, I don't teach new skills with toys, hardly ever. Because <laughs> um, yeah, they they can't think, and and it slows everything down, and it adds all this 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 emotion that I want ultimately, but it's very hard to to put into the learning process very early on. But it's so glorious when you can get it. Um, yes, because all of that, just all of that amazing power and focus and you know, what we call, well, all the things we call drive, I'm putting quotes around drive because it's one of those things you can unpack. All of that, when you channel that into a precise behavior, um, mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, they get this. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So, you know, kind of circling back to mechanics. What are some of the human end of the leash behaviors that we may want to look at as far as, you know, so we've talked about the dog might be barking or biting at you or spinning or doing all sorts of other things that, and that could be related to your mechanics, but what are some of the behaviors that the human is performing that may be part of that picture as well? Um, well, uh, one of the big ones is uh, big lumps in criteria. So a criteria mm-hmm. is the standard the animal has to perform to get the thing that they want, right? So mm-hmm. if if you start out reinforcing for this, like a you know a half second duration, and then all of a sudden you jump to okay, he's got it now. Let's do three minutes. That's one example of. We call it, we call it lumping. Uh, and if you kind of jump your criteria around like that, or if you have no criteria, so it's like you're you're just kind of winging it, and that also can create um, situations where that basically you're not even sure what you're rewarding or what you're looking for or what you're reinforcing. And so you're going to get a whole bunch of behaviors. And it sometimes feels like the animal says, well, which which one of these gets the reinforcement. And if in certain personality types, certain genetic packages, uh, they will, they will just escalate immediately um, in that place where, um, you know, well, once this is, this whole thing is about one second. What do you mean? Three minutes, like three minutes is not Mm -hmm. even, 
registering as the rules of this game. Um, and so what I think about is like, I think about criteria is what are the rules of the game and, and can you be fair with those rules? And there's two ways to be fair. One is make sure the criteria is doable. So really, really, you know, make sure that you split the job down into such small little steps that it's doable. So you always find where the animal can start out very successful, but it's also fair to start raising that criteria slowly over time. Because if you, if you stay at, at a real easy criteria for a really long time and then you shift, it's a big change of rules. Does that make sense? But if you gradually shift over time, you're teaching the animal that variations in the behavior slightly is what the game is about. If that makes sense. But a lot of people, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll get stuck and they'll either overdo it at one level or they jump way too far ahead too fast. So it's, that's the art of it. Um, so I would say uh, being criteria is a big one. And then the mm -hmm. other one, of course, is just, reinforcement patterns. Um, I have all of my students, I teach a number of online classes, um, and we start out the uh, almost a full few weeks of just, can you hand a piece of food to the dog in a way that it's clear when he can take it from your hand versus when it's going to go on the floor versus when you're going to throw it? Can you make every body language cue super clear that you're going to do those things? Um, before we even add a marker signal. Uh, and that's yeah. so that what I like is the, the marker sends the information, you did it. And then I like the learner to see by your shoulder movement, ah, treats are going to be tossed. Got it. Clean, mm -hmm. simple. No, like, where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? Um, and I like to keep almost every training session. I mean, I will adapt if it's not working, but I try to say this is the pattern for this session. So for this next minute of training, every treat's going to be over there. So, so the uh -huh. dog can yeah, have yeah. to process five different reinforcement strategies at once for that one minute. And then I might put the dog away and go, well, that treat strategy was not creating the behavior I wanted. That, that wasn't, it was too, he was too far away or something. I might switch it to the, the next session and say, okay, hey, dog, in this session, I'm going to feed three inches closer to the target or whatever. But I don't. Tr I try not to switch all of that around in a single session because that makes yeah, that uh -huh. now the dog has to watch you for more. It has to process more information. Like, where's the treat? Are you going to put your hand in your pocket? Are you throwing it? Is it going to be a scatter? Are you going to get a toy out for me? And I find that also starts to destabilize uh, the learning process and can set you up for dogs missing criteria right? They start mess. They don't meet criteria, then you can't click it. And now you're frustrated. See? And so, yeah, uh -huh. um, so a really simple thing, like I have some students that so interesting. So, uh, the dog will just get into a weird thing. Like between every reinforcement delivery, they will go sniff the ground and wander around and then kind of come back and then give you the behavior again. And we're like, well, that's not clean enough. And they, and, and it's so easy to go, well, he's distracted. He's shy. He's right. But all this trainer had to do was put a little uh, target bowl on the floor 
And oh, after, every, uh-huh. after every click, she put the treat in that target bowl and the everything cleaned right up. That dog was like, oh, got it. I don't have to search the floor for food. And the whole behavior cleaned up. And that's a beautiful example of a simple mechanical, I would call that mechanics. Although we actually, uh, mechanics is the best word we have, um, but it sounds very uh, mechanical. It sounds, it sounds like I'm fixing a car. You know, it sounds, the word mechanics. Um, I like to th- redefine that word somehow as like, but we don't have a better word yet. Um, but when it's really, when you're really humming along, it feels more like you're dancing with the animal or you're, you're, you're giving feedback loops or yeah, exactly something like that rather than I'm coldly and mechanically, you know, reinforcing you like I'm a machine dropping a pellet. Um, yeah, no, I, I think trying to think about it as far as, you know, we want our training to be clean, um, it's helpful. Um, but yeah, I agree. Mechanics is kind of a, it's, it's not exactly the word we like. And no, I can totally see as well, going back to the dog who was um, sniffing around. That's something I see particularly in my younger dog who I selected, surprise, surprise, for being a dog who's kind of always been extremely odor focused and very concerned about where his reinforcers are. It's exactly what makes him the sort of dog that I want for this line of work. But also when I'm training him with treats, um, I pretty much always have to hand them to him. Because if I do pattern games where I'm tossing on the ground for him, it every repetition gets so messy. Um, even when I try, and I've tried before to do like left-right pattern games with him, and unless I'm on like pavement with really big visible treats, I still, I get that sniffing behavior as part of the topography and it's not the end of the world. It just slows our training down. And if I only have so much time and want to get some reps in, it's not, um, not convenient. Yes. Yes. That's, you know, good to know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Versus my other dog, Barley, he's very much so like, whatever I've got in my hand is what he assumes is best. So I I can call him off of a a bowl of food to give him the same thing he had in the bowl because he just, for whatever reason, he thinks anything I've got is therefore the best thing, Um, which is handy. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, so this is something that, that you, so you use the word, you know, clean loops. You know, I know we've, a lot of people in the, in the, the dog world have been talking a lot about loopy training lately. And this is what we were not what we were supposed to be talking about, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. As far as it, it seems like our loops in scent work are really big. And I think one of the things that makes it hard for us to clean up our mechanics is that if your your behaviors that you're going for, or the behaviors that you're struggling with are happening at a late stage in a search, it makes it really difficult to get the repetitions in to fix that. Um, so an example being with my dog, Barley, he really struggled with kind of getting up past about an hour of searching, which is a huge ask. Of course he was struggling, Um, but it's part of the job. And um, the thing that I really struggled with is like, oh my God, how do I make the time to deal with this problem? So what are some of our, what are your thoughts on that as far as like loopy training in the search dog or detection dog world? That's such a good question. 
So uh, Steve White is a, a influence on some of my thinking. He trains um, police dogs who do tracking, uh, drug detection, that kind of thing. And he has a thing he calls, um, he breaks the whole search down into three components. Uh, and I've heard various others, uh, um, scent professionals use different language, but the same idea is a search, locate, and report. So there's three phases of uh, any search. Um, and you can think about it forwards or backwards. Forwards would be uh, teaching the dog to hunt first. So, uh, and that's the part where you just send them out and they, they start to just learn to find things. Um, but the locate component in my world, a lot of people think that the indicate component is the most important part. And it is very important to have that be so solidly reinforced that it's kind of like an anchor pulling the whole thing uh, to a, a, a clear, a clear uh, ending point. But for me, it's the place to really look at is that locate component. And that's where the dog first encounters odor. So in the search component, they're looking for odor. They're casting out for odor. And then when they encounter odor, you'll see that first change of behavior. And now they're starting to work it. And there's a locate, that locate, they have to pin it down. And that's where you'll see bracketing. You'll see all the cool odor behavior happening. Um, and then eventually they, they hone it down and they'll give you the, the report. So what, we, what I like to do is teach that whole thing backwards. So we start with that nose on source or, or whatever your indication is. You make sure that's really, really fluent. And the reason you want that so fluent is uh, by the time the dog gets to that part, they have very little brain. Uh, I'm just guessing, but I'm assuming they're tired right? They've yeah. done all the really hard work. If you're searching for an hour, negotiating, uh, my dog negotiates really complicated odor puzzles, which would be a room filled with the loudest odor imaginable. And he has to pull it apart like a puzzle. Um, and I, and so by the time they get to the end point, I don't want the dog having to wonder how to get reinforced. I just want it to be almost yeah. muscle memory, mm -hmm. just, just muscle memory of like, I don't even, I'm exhausted, but I'll just do my thing without even thinking about it. Um, so we start with that indication part, whatever it is. It could be just duration of nose on the source. It could be a, a down. It could be your barking. It could be whatever. Um, train it heavily so that the it's like a huge reinforcement anchor. It's just in there. And that's where you can get all those beautiful, clean loops because you you can start there and just work those loops right close to your target odor over and over and over again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then when you back it up, uh, add a little complexity and ask the dog to start locating first and then give you that, right? You're backing it up with maybe starting the dog a little farther away or upwind instead of downwind. Like downwind is so much easier because if you start a dog downwind with an yeah. easy target, that's a nice starting point because they're going to go right to it and get reinforced immediately. Um, upwind would be a little harder. And then what I want to see, I really want to see when a dog is searching is that all three components are clean. 
So what that looks like for me is that when I send that dog out to the search area, he is searching right away, immediately. Um, Mm -hmm. He's not sniffing the ground, scratching an itch, looking at me for information, wondering what to do. There, that's even if there is no odor available in the beginning, I want to see a dog actively seeking it. Then when that dog encounters odor, I want to see an immediate response and change. Like I want to see that that odor is, is actually working as a cue. And then I want that dog to stay persistently on Mm -hmm. that puzzle. And then actually the indication at that point, if you've trained it well, it's just, it just happens, right? That's, but if that makes sense to you, like that's how I I do think of it as a clean loop, even though it could take an hour. Yeah. An hour. So if you're seeing, let's say you start a search and you see the dog goes off and pees or chases a rabbit. That in my mind is telling you that your search setup is, is like lumping. You're, it's too complicated. Mm-hmm. It's too, maybe too many miles or too much, right? You have to bring it back down again to get that straight shot of search, locate, and report. Yeah. Right? And sometimes yeah, you go all and- the way back to report again and just mm-hmm. build that up and build that up and build that up. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's kind of yeah. thinking about it like back chaining or some amount of, you know, building up an endurance event. Um, but yeah, so and what I'm kind of thinking that I, I'm still, I'm still a little stuck on this one. Um, and again, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of throwing this at you and we'll get back onto our listed questions eventually. Um, so, so Barley, when he was building up, he was, um, he was lovely in like 20 30, 40 minute searches even. Um, and he was always really solid um, and still is when he located or, you know, once he, he encountered odor and then needed to source it. He was always solid with his alerts. But what I saw is after 45, 50 minutes or so, if he still hadn't encountered anything, I started to get a lot of this behavior of him looking up at me and being like, what are we doing, mom? You know, What's going on? And he, instead of searching and quartering and being out in the environment, he would come back and look at me. Um, or even there were times where he would just start alerting to random things. Um, and what, again, what I really struggle with, and there might just be no magic bullet to this, is like, gosh, darn it. Like, I can only do one repetition of pushing him up a little bit, you know, and trying to get a 45-minute search in and then a 47 minute search and I can only do like one of those a day. And I didn't, so that's what I was thinking about as far as like a clean loop. Like if you've got a problem that occurs possibly due to fatigue (laughs) in a long, long loop. And again, maybe you're only, maybe what you need to do is just do a 47 minute training session once a day and keep pushing it up. I don't know. That's interesting. You know what, when you describe that problem, my first thought went to a, it's like a duration plateau. So it's actually not a good idea to only do 47 because it's possible that when dogs learn duration tasks, often the thing they're learning is not the thing we think we're teaching. So in my mind, the duration task is maintain this thing until you are marked, right? That's what I think Uh I'm teaching. But often if you, let's say you always do a five minute repetition 
just accidentally, because you're not paying attention. What your learner will learn is I will work for five minutes and then I stop, right? And that's how this works. So uh, it's like a, a duration plateau. I'm sure fatigue has something to do with it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it, I was more thinking as far as trying to avoid lumping, like not going from 45 yeah. to one hour because we were getting so much failure in that last 15 minutes. Yeah. That'd be or so many hiccups in those last 15 minutes. I don't know. I don't know if it, it really didn't count as failure. Because again, then as soon as like we did encounter the high that I set out, he was beautiful. But don't, do you ever do uh, blank area searches where there is nothing to find? I'm sure you do, right? We do. Yeah. But um, yeah. And this was at a stage, this was, gosh, like three years ago now. Um and I would see similar things on really, really long blank searches, but like a 30 minute blank search, not a problem. I wouldn't get this. Hmm. Now I did something rather unorthodox with my dog. Now my uh, sport detection dogs do not have to work that long. Um, sport, <laughs> yeah. sport detection dogs, you know, up at the upper levels of the sport, um, which I am where I am competing now. I mean, we might get a nine minute search you know, something like that. Um, there'll be complex searches, like I said, but they, uh, and some, in some venues, uh, you'll get huge blank areas to clear and then a whole cluster of very close converging, uh, hides in another area. Ooh, interesting. And, and that's kind of fun. And, and the challenge there is after all of that big area searching, the dog will hit a couple of those close ones, think they're done and leave it. Um, and you'll still miss a couple because they're all close together. That's fun too. But um, it is a challenge. Um, it's an endurance challenge for sure. But I did something a little unorthodox with my dog. Um, and I don't recommend it for everyone because you'd have to do it very carefully. But um, in, in my sport, we have a finished call, which means that we have decided the area is clear. And there's different people train different things, but most, the most common thing is, is to just read the dog's behavior as clear. Um, because there are yeah. boundaries, right? If you're out, you know, out in the wilderness, you may not have any boundaries, but, um, we still so, generally have like a parameter of like an area that we're supposed to search or, you know, like a one kilometer transect or something. We've got right. an area we're clearing usually like they don't just release us into Yellowstone National Park and say, have fun, kids. See you in three weeks. <laughs> but one thing I, I did early on was I I back chained my dog's finished call to toy delivery. So he gets his toy whether or not he finds target odor. And the, what happens is I noticed that finish call became a like very powerful marker signal. And cause he's really, you know, that's his favorite, right? He, he gets a regular marker signal and food for every fine. And then at the end, when we've cleared the area, he'll get his finish call. And sometimes he gets a finished on odor and sometimes not. And what I found is if I was very, very careful to only say finished when he was actively searching, not when he stops and looks at me, not when he's pooping out, when he's actively working. I got more active work. I got a lot of active work. In fact, it's almost a problem for me because he works so hard that I sometimes have trouble reading areas as clear because it looks like he's working something really hard. Um, but <laughs> gotcha. I, yeah. have, oh. 
I've learned that you get what you you get what you reinforce. So if he quits and looks at me and then I give him the toy, I am going to get that at a certain place where right? And some people use that as an all clear signal like the dog says sure. Mm-hmm. This area is clear. And I'm curious with your dog like maybe that's his that your dog's way of saying this whole 5 acres that we're in is clear. And then you would say, let's move somewhere else. And then you would move him to an active area or something. Do you know what I mean? So like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to solve your problem because I don't yeah, know. No. Well, I'm throwing my problems at you. So, um, but, and we did, you know, we interesting thing to think about, you'll get what you reinforce. So fatigue and a pattern of stopping means I'm not saying you're giving the toy or anything, but it is something is reinforcing that pattern. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think he's a border collie, and I think to him, some amount of any instruction is reinforcing. So what I have found with him, and he, and he's even he's he's a very kind of emotionally codependent guy. <laughs> if we're gonna if we're gonna really anthropomorphize him, but um, he yeah he really finds any instruction or redirection reinforcing. He's just like oh thank God you've given me instructions. Um, so I think that was probably part of it. And we did, basically, we got past it by just kind of intentionally setting up things where it's like, all right, here's a 48-minute a blank area, and then, you're, and then you're target. And then maybe you even search another 20 minutes after that and just kind of continuing to build up um, that endurance that way. It was nothing fancy. It was nothing pretty. Um, but it worked. And, you know, honestly, I haven't had to work another area. So in that search, um, we were searching 300 acre blocks. Um, so we would have like a big block and I was, we weren't done yet at an hour. We still had, you know, 150 acres that we hadn't even walked through yet. Um, and one of the things that I have come around to a little bit is partially, um, there's a there's a couple things I'm going to bring up. Um, one of being just kind of intentionally giving more breaks, um, and also uh, two recognizing that needing to instruct my dog again is not like a moral failing. Like if he searches again, if I cue him to search, that's fine. Like I don't have to give him one cue for a behavior he performs for two hours. That's not a problem for me and my line of work. And then three, um, and we recorded a podcast episode that's going to come out like a month and a half ahead of yours um, with Paul Bunker from Chiron Canine. And one of the things he talks about a lot is finding other reinforceable um, behaviors within your search. So he talks about giving dogs food rewards for responding to directional cues or recalls and those sorts of things. So that over the course of a really long search, you've got multiple other kind of rewardable events, even if we're still holding the the squeaky ball on the rope as the holy grail for the odor. Um, so that's so that, that's kind of what, what we ended up doing. That's, that sounds really good. And it, same with my sport. Like if we're in the middle of a search and things are just going like we're both confused, flabbergasted, you're totally allowed. I, this was a big thing for me. I'm like, I'm totally allowed to stop the search, talk to my dog for a second and recue the whole thing or maybe move to a different spot for a different angle or something. Um, and that has saved us many times. And, um, and I have a dog that shouldn't need that support right? He's like Mr. Supercharged Labrador dude. But he, he, it actually, it, it helped. Maybe it's just helping me, but you know, we just take a breath, 
You know, mm-hmm. we don't have to go 100 miles an hour the whole time. Yeah. We can, uh, you know, these are, com- but I was thinking f- for you, for example, so as we know how reinforcement works, um, do you know, like, you sounds like you do some Le- Leslie McDevitt uh, control unleash type. Yeah. Work. Yeah. We play around you know with they, that sort of you stuff. Know they give me, you know, they give me a break game. Yes. Uh-huh. Right? So I used to do uh, the give me a break game with my other dog, who is that stereotypical soft dog, the quitter. You know, uh, she could work for 30 seconds. Then that's she lays down and looks at you kind of dog. And I brought in the give me a break structure. And what worked really well for her was I knew that taking a break was reinforcing. Like, like, right. And so I tried to catch her before she asked for a break. Oh, so if uh-huh. I knew that she was going to so ask for a break. So that you could give the break as the reward for continuing to work. To work. And then oh, and that brilliant. Totally, uh-huh. it totally worked. So yeah. like you could do, let's say, you know, 47 minutes is your, you know, your gooby spot, your gooby spot. I don't, I just made that word up. It's very technical. And then uh, you stop your, you, your dog is fully working, fully searching. You're getting close 40 minutes. You stop your dog and reinforce that great work with a break and some connection with you and then some direction from you and see if it just promotes another burst of energy um by 300 acres my i am so impressed that is incredible <laughs> it was a lot um you know it's yeah <laughs> it was a it was a lot we were doing kind of a study comparing um like transect um spacing mm-hmm. and search area to see you know, what you could kind of get away with and still have the dogs be really effective. So we were kind of intentionally asking a lot of them. Yeah. So um, I don't know, things, things for people to play around with, but just yeah, notice those. No, I, I love that notice idea. Notice reinforcing and maybe <clears throat> use what the animal is actually asking for, but use it to build stronger behavior in the long run. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think it's such a good point, you know, reminding ourselves, you know, I have a background in behavior. I, I was in shelter behavior for a couple of years before, um, before getting into this. And I still do it part time because this is not a full time job that pays enough. Um, uh, is, you know, thinking about like, what is he actually asking for? Was he actually asking for a break? No, he he absolutely wanted to keep going. He just didn't know. He was like, what is going on? Like he was confused and stressed out. Um, and you know, sometimes we don't know what's going on. Um, but you know, making sure that we understand what they're asking for so that we can give that as a way to reinforce the behavior we want. That's, that's really, really nice. My name is key and I have a two year old working cocker spaniel named Cooper. Cooper and I are new to this field of conservation detection dog work, so I am loving being a Patreon of the Canine Conservationist. Uh, we get to meet once a month via Zoom with people all over the world and watch each other's videos and um, give input, and it's just been such a wonderful learning opportunity. Um, on top of that, I'm really excited about something that's about to start, which is a book club that we're going to be going through a scent book that I tried to go through on my own and realized I really needed some more help. So it was perfect timing for me, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, just being able to meet people and 
talk through issues and um, better understand the whole field of canine conservation work um, has just been such a, a great thing. And Kayla and the canine conservationists have played such a huge part in that happening for me. So thanks, Kayla. Okay, <laughs> let's um, let's kind of try to zoom back into some of our mechanics questions. Um, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the decision to use toys versus food as a way to build behavior. Um, have you run into anything or have you seen cases where switching up the type of toy or type of food matters? Um, you know, like what I was saying earlier with Niffler needing a larger food reward so that he didn't get into, we call it Nifflin, um, where he just kind of goes off and his nose is to the ground. And he's, you know, he's just uh, head in the sky for 45 minutes, just totally gone. Uh, yes and no. Um, I'm always a little leery with the, I think crutch is the, not quite the right, it's kind of a too strong a word, but when you, Let's say you get into a training problem where you're getting frustration. You would label frustration, I don't know, fussing, barking, nipping. And you go, oh, this, these treats are too exciting. So I'm going to try a lower value food uh, uh -huh. to bring that arousal down, which is very, very common, everyone. And sometimes it looks like it's working, right? The, the next session, you'll get a little flatter dog, a little less. Um, but what I would like to focus on I'm not saying that's a bad idea, but I would like to focus on, well, what was not what was not clear in the first place? Like in that situation. Now, I did make the choice to not teach my dog foundation skills using a tennis ball. So it's kind of the same thing. I went back to food, which is easier. Uh, and then I went through, um, when I taught a lot of the trade cues and uh, we had a big issue with me even picking toys up off the ground. Like just leaning down to pick up a toy was a big cue for him to uh, not not guard, but snatch it so hard that you were not safe. Um, so I did go through a progression of like things that were not toys, you know, like remote controls, hairbrushes, shoes. Yeah. You know, just, just so we could practice over and over again that I'm going to do this thing. And it results in this thing. So I would, you know, hold up, uh, hold up some very, very good food. I would say trade. And if he focused on the food in my hand, that's, that was, I took as a yes, that I could pick up the thing off the ground. And then I would, then I would throw the food and we still use that. We still use that to this day. I don't, I mean, I think I could pick up toys now and not, not lose a finger, but I feel like I should honor what I taught him. So that is an example where I, I did sort of a gradation of maybe what you would call value, but the way I look at it is this, the, the ball had a reinforce, uh, it was already cueing a suite of behaviors that were previously learned. Uh, my dog came from the shelter. He was four years old. He came with this. I, I you know, not my fault. Um, but I, <laughs> he came with this behavior and it, I felt like it was unfair to ask him to offer me new behaviors under those conditions. So it wasn't, I wasn't thinking I'm going to devalue the reinforcement to get him to be calmer. I was thinking under these conditions where this type of reinforcement is present, he's not able to give me other behaviors because he's learned these other ones. Does that make sense? 
So there's yeah, I there's, think there's, so. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, and I think it reminds me a little bit of when you've got a the opposite almost of when you've got a picky dog and it's like, well, you might not want to constantly try to convince the dog to eat by adding better and better food because then you might basically be teaching the dog to wait and refuse what they don't want in order to get something better. And it almost seems like kind of the opposite of there may be cases where, and again, so I'll, I'll keep picking on Barley. We'll, we'll just keep picking on our own dogs because they're the ones we're allowed to do that with. <laughs> you know, he's a border collie. When he's got a toy or there's a toy that he really wants, he gets stuck in the like frozen staring, like, you know, and that's the genetic behavior that you're going to get with a lot of our border collies. Um, so rather than trying to find something I, I, maybe am I am I understanding you correctly that it's not so much that we don't want to be playing with reinforcer value. It's more just that I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to bring out toys because he's capable with, or I'm going to bring out food because he's capable with food, and then I'll build up to him being able to do this behavior with toys rather than kind of thinking, oh, I want something boring. Am I yeah. getting that nuance? Exactly. Yeah. And you still need clarity because you can bring the most boring food in the world. One for, for the, you know, my big thing is I, I want to use something the dog cares about. Of course. So if I'm using something that is sort of like cardboard and they're sort of giving me behaviors, but I'm not getting any of the screamy behaviors, but I'm not getting any good be I'm not getting any enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I actually always pay well. I always have either, you know, I, I mean, I, I, my, my qualif you know, you should always ask the learner what they love. Sometimes kibble is fantastic. Um, but I just think step one is clarity um, of your, <laughs> now I've got a squeaky boy outside, um, clarity of patterns in terms of does, are you clear with that animal how to get that reinforcement? Or are you holding out for more than that animal can give you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't really matter at that point what that reinforcer is. So I'm not saying I would never try a lower value or higher value. I've, you know, or like try a high value thing to get more zoom and enthusiasm. I have tried that. Yeah, of um, course. But I, I still find that it, if the behavior is uh, got a really clear, solid, confident reinforcement history, um, it almost mm -hmm. doesn't matter sometimes, unless there's a huge expectation for a toy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell well, you a really funny story my dog did once. Please was, do. Um, he was getting toy rewards for every nose work find. And then when we got to the upper levels, I realized that's a lot of um, time lost because it's a time sport. So to, to tug out, get the toy, move on. I actually taught him all those skills. I was really proud he could do it, but it's not very fast. And so I, I was like, oh, great. I have to switch to food. It's just faster. He can swallow it and move on to the next target. But he didn't eat the food. Um, he held it in his mouth. He just held it. <laughs> oh, no, funny. No. And at the end, when he got his finished call and I said finished, he would spit out all the food. 
I don't know how he managed to do his work like this. And then he would take his toy. And he, so he was very, you know, he was a very good boy. Said, well, you want me to eat this? So I'll just hold it here. But I'll I just put it in my mouth. I'll, I'll pretend yeah, to be a chipmunk for you, mom. It's weird, but fine. You know, because he was expecting a toy. You know, he was, mm-hmm. I taught him that odor makes toys. So uh, I had to actually teach him to eat and swallow. Um, and I did do that by giving very large meatballs. And I don't think it was the high value. It was just a texturally big. <laughs> and yeah. he, he, he kind of had to swallow It's very it. hard to hold that in your mouth. It makes the behavior <laughs> we didn't want kind of impossible. So anyway, I don't know. There's a lot of, I just, my point is, um, I'm not an absolutist, but I do think we should be careful. Every time we say, this dog's freaking out, let's try a lower value food. That statement always makes me go, well, let's look at the training and make sure it's not something else first. Um, yeah. Well, the, the examples I was thinking of, and remind me after I say this, I've got to tell you a funny story about cardboard as a reinforcer. Um, <laughs> um, I was kind of thinking of times where I've been working with, um, so I, I work part-time right now at the Humane Society of Boulder Valley, and they're fabulous about having a wide variety of treats available. I'm on the training and behavior team, but I've never before worked with sliced lunch meat. And like the number of times I'm trying to reinforce a dog for something. And then I come away with like half of a piece of ham still stuck to my finger. And then the dog is kind of still attached to my finger and we're getting really messy mechanics because like these treats just are really difficult to work with. And I know, I think Hannah Brannigan at some point on her podcast talked about having really bouncy treats and she was, she switched from like a perfectly round treat to something that was more disc shaped um, because she she was getting some really frantic behavior from the dog, um, you know, which is a label. Um, and then the, the other example I've thought of is if you're trying to play tug with like a, a dog who already enjoys tug, sometimes going for the really, really whippy tugs can be problematic because they already want it badly enough. And then it's just hard to catch, you know, and they, those dogs might do just as well with like a stiffer tug toy that's easier to handle safely. So that's kind of what I was getting at with that question. And I'll, I'll see if you want to respond to, respond to any of that before I bring up our cardboard story. Um, no, I agree with all that. I mean, that's, that's a little separate from what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. It's more in the, in the mechanic side of for this task, because there might be tasks where a whippy tug is the perfect thing for some you know, yeah. like, like I've known a lot of dogs that will only engage with a, do- a toy that kind of looks like a fleeing rabbit. Um, and they don't know what to do with those hard, you know, bite, bite yeah, like the, that you hold in your What hand. are those other things like, that everyone bite? uses? Yeah. The, they're, yeah. They're, uh, I feel like and, I've um, seen these, like, uh, I can't remember what they're called, but there's something like a dairy farm related toy that a lot of people use. Oh yeah. They're like an udder, like a, uh, yeah, yeah, and I think thing. they're really popular for really chompy dogs because it's like it's something really solid for them to grab onto. It's nice and stiff. I don't know. I've never used them, but I feel like I've seen them really popular in some sport worlds. Right, and I, I'm kind of on the on this. Well, I'm on two sides. One is is the reinforcement you have chosen uh, meaningful to the learner? I mean, that's pretty important to me. If it if this is the really meaningful thing and your dog your dog can't handle it right now, then my job as a trainer would be to teach the skills so they can. 
because this is the thing that's going to make this behavior the best, right? Mm-hmm. Or, right? Or um, is this the tool that is going to serve the behavior you're working on, right? And there might be a range of tools and they're all equally good, but this one with the flat, you know, these little treats that don't bounce are perfect yeah. for this behavior. And that to me is good training as well, because that's part of the antecedent arrangement. That's part of the, you're setting the context for the learning you want to happen. Um, and that has nothing to do with the dog is just freaking out too much. So I'm going to do something boring. That's, you know, I'm going to make my training more clear because bouncy treats yeah. are irregular. And yeah, a choice that. of reinforcement can make your delivery mechanics better or worse. Exactly. Right. And sometimes yeah. you have a brand new trainer who's new. Yeah. And it's better for them to have not too sticky, slimy, icky treats. And they are. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right? So, and that's fine. That's good. That means their session is going to go better than the person with hot dogs who it's sticking every time and that it's not clear when it's coming out of their fingers and it's. The mm-hmm. reinforcement timing is off. Yeah, so you have one I person with high value and one person with low value, but the low value person that's clear is usually going to get better. Right. Behavior. Right. Well, because frustration is going to be aversive. <laughs> um, and if, if the dog's confused and frustrated and, you know, the treats are going every which way and they have no idea why or when or how they're going to show up, you can have the best toys in the world or the best treats in the world, but it's not a good learning experience. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, it's had almost, you had a cardboard. Oh, yes. Story. Yeah. So this cardboard story. Yeah. It's fun. I, I just, I thought of it cause you gave cardboard as an example of like <laughs> this mega low value reinforcer. And so Barley, again, he is the most fetch obsessed dog I've ever interacted with my entire life. And I have interacted with a lot of working dogs. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I guess a week and a half ago now, we were doing a ski joring race and we just crossed the finish line and he is super high. He's amped on life. He, he loves ski joring. He loves the crowds. It's like he, as soon as we get around cheering people, you can really see him getting excited. Um, and he crosses the finish line and he runs straight up past the press person and grabs the cardboard press sign and like runs a victory lap. He's still attached to me and I'm on my skis at the time. And then he starts bringing it to every person he can find in the finish area, trying to get them to throw this piece of cardboard for him. <laughs> and he's, I mean, it was just, and like, I let everyone do it. I, I just like unclipped the emergency release on the ski jarring belt. So I didn't die. And then was like, yeah, have at it, buddy. If this cardboard is the thing that you want. And and this brings up a whole other question that like, I don't know, I'll have to get another guest on to talk about this topic, but how arousal for some dogs <laughs> makes reinforcers just that much more exciting. And for some dogs, I mean, I guess it's probably difference in types of arousal, but I don't think he would have been nearly as excited about that piece of cardboard if he hadn't just finished a race and there weren't people cheering and there wasn't all this adrenaline going on. But it was just, it was funny that, <laughs> you know, your, your example of cardboard um, was also the exact thing that my dog had lost his head over <laughs> a week and a half ago. And that's so fantastic because you've just got to stay open to that. I've had some uh, nose work fr- friends in the scent detection, in the amateur detection world, where at the end of the search, way better than food is to let their dog go greet everybody in the room. 
And that all of a sudden now that dog was searching with sparkle and enthusiasm. And, you know, I love that because initially it was, you know, basically correct her for being distracted and trying to say hi to everyone. And I, and I was saying, well, that's what she loves. She's loving this. So let's put this on cue. Yeah, and let's, let's leverage her, it. Teach her when she finds odor, she's, she gets her cue to go say hello to everybody. And so I love the, I love those kind of things when we're kind of be out of the realm of the food and toys. I love that story with your dog of yeah. maybe it's just little clarity and direction would be the reinforcement there. Mm-hmm. Um, or just a little connection after an hour of work. Like we, we yeah. all need that. We all need that. Am I yeah. doing okay? Oh my God. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I, I really, really love that kind of, because that's what, when it turns. And I think I, you said, uh, like a call to action and mm-hmm. you like to have a call to action. And one of my calls yeah. to action thought of was I love precision training. I love clean mechanics. I love clean loops. I'm, I'm just I, I mean, it's just a beautiful thing when it all comes together. But if it's at the expense of that joy, yeah, or that connection, if it's at, and it, it really can't, it shouldn't be an either or at all. But um, I have seen it go that way where it suddenly becomes this drill of do it again, do it again, do yeah. it again. I've, I've actually coached some, some teams um, that do a search and rescue. And the stakes are so high, you know, for search and rescue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would watch and the dog would do per- 10 perfect repetitions. Not, I'm not talking about a full search. She was actually good at breaking it down to just the locate and report section. But the dog would do 10 perfect repetitions and then be asked to do 10 more. And, and, I was, and then the behavior would start to deteriorate. And I would kind of say, well, is it why? Why do we need 20? Right. Yeah. Why do we need that many? Because he's already doing it. And it's an exhausting alert. It was like an extended barking alert. Um, and one of the things she wanted me to help her fix was to get a better consistency on his barking alert. And little things like that. Like there are this moment where it, you're, you're losing that sense of, and when she, when she, when she was more sensitive to her dog's needs like that, everything got more fun for them. Everything got more joyous, more success. Um, so I don't know, just, I really like that idea is just the goal here is to find a balance. Um, too much chaos yeah. is no fun. Too much chaos is no <clears throat> fun. Uh, too much drill to the point of excluding all others, like where you have like a black and white way of training something without any, without listening, like never give your dog cardboard at the end of a, you know, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, you just, what a joyful thing. What a wonderful right. moment. And yeah. that's to me the point. That's the point of all of this. Um, that's why I do it. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of, that's one of my favorite things, uh, particularly about working with dogs where toys are part of their reward is how much fun that reward sequence can be for both of us. You know, I mean, I love feeding my dogs treats. <laughs> I love giving them a bowl of spaghetti with meatballs just for fun. <laughs> But it's like the the collaborative joy, especially uh, like I find playing frisbee with my dogs so reinforcing because watching them run after it, track the frisbee and catch it. And both of my dogs like frisbee is probably tied up top with a squeaky ball on a rope. Niffler, my younger dog, is probably above. And it's just it's great. You know, it's and I think, you know, this is where having, you know, our good toy skills and making sure that what should be 
should be, which is a, you know, it's a big phrase, the, the most joyous part of our training and, you know, the part, it's the reinforcement, making sure it can be reinforcing for all parties. Because <laughs> um, again, I mean, both of us, we've worked with dogs where it's painful or scary or potentially downright dangerous to try to reward this dog at this point in time. And I went through a whole period of time with my Labrador with really goofy toys that had mm. no, so he had his work toys and uh -huh. then we had our goofy toys and they're like these fluffy rainbow ball things that are very much like ducks. So they're very good for the Labrador mouth. Um, and oh, nice. With those goofy toys, I kind of threw everything out the window, like all the rules other, you know, just if he wanted to keep it for five days and never give it to me, he could. Uh, with with those toys, we just played. We just were silly and figured out all these games. And it 100% strengthened our relationship. And I I wasn't worrying about like fluency and all his out cues or, you know, yeah. I was like, I'll say, hey, you want to give me that? And he'll, he'd be like, no, no, no. There's and no we, way. <laughs> and, and that's the, you know, we have so much fun. Um, yeah. And, oh. and it's, I don't know how to, it just was so worth it to have this place where you, you, I could let go of some of all that. Um, yeah. And be more like a, a, a dance and an interaction. Um, but I do recommend like, if you have working dogs, it, like, like have a, a place for that in their lives. Yeah. So, and maybe you have to put that on a really clear cues, like um, our silly fluffy balls. So this is the silly fluffy mm -hmm. ball rules. And with these yeah. rules, you can... I mean, that to me has been a big part of the value that I've found in keeping, because we do keep the Frisbees and the balls up. Um, they do not have free access to those. Niffler, my younger dog, probably could and would be okay. Um, Barley, a big part of it, honestly, when I got him, he was three and a half. His canines were already worn down because he will just sit and worry at these balls for hours and hours and hours and hours every day. And like, that's just not good for him. But the other advantage, it's not that I need to keep them sequestered so that I can maintain his drive levels. Like, absolutely not. He could have toys all day and would still work for them. But it's for that clarity. And especially, I am so protective of my squeaky balls on ropes. Nobody gets to play with my dog with those except for me because of the mechanics. <laughs> you know, it's again, it's not because I am like the supreme leader of the household. <laughs> it's just because, you know, it. I've seen it happen so, so many times where someone accidentally turns a squeaky toy or, you know, the squeaky ball on rope into a flirt pole. And then you've got a dog vaulting off of your side to try to get this toy, which is absolutely not the behavior that I need in the field. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. I'm just, I don't know if we have time, but, and you don't of have course. to keep this part, but I'm curious, what is your definition of mechanics? Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> I'm not one of those podcasters who's very good about defining my terms at the start of a podcast. When I was thinking about mechanics and when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, I was really thinking about the physicality of how toys are presented to the dog in a way to get the dog to engage with the toys appropriately. So I was thinking on a very, like, the physics of reinforcement. Um, and we ended up going in this totally other direction, which I thought was better in a lot of ways, because one of the things I've been worrying about planning for this podcast was, gosh, how are we going to talk about reward mechanics of, you know, how to hold a toy in a podcast? 
and especially when it's going to vary so much from dog to dog as far as how you want to present the toys or or the, the again like the physicality of the reinforcement does that answer your question yeah yeah um it does yeah and uh, so but i'm really pleased with all the other yeah. random tangents we went down i'll probably change the title of this episode but um <laughs> i loved this conversation oh i'm so glad so that my yeah. total pleasure yeah um, so i could talk right. about that too but it, i don't think you can talk about that very long you have to practice it you, yeah. you have to it's almost like aikido or something it's like you know, and then uh, I learned the hard way. I, I lost skin. I lost finger. And I go, oh, I better not present the toy this way, you know, or near my body. It has to be, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I learned the hard way. But, um, but yeah, but it's hard to do on a podcast. It is. And I actually, I'll, I'll include a picture just for, for giggles um, in the show notes as well. One of my most memorable experiences, I was like, gosh, I'd been working for Working Dogs for Conservation, like maybe two months total. I was on assignment with Barley, um, who is a trainee dog, and then Tobias, who is um, this lovely, lovely lab. Um, And we were doing zebra mussel boat screenings in Yellowstone. And Tobias had just finished up doing a demonstration for a group of people, because we'd kind of do demos every couple couple hours. Um, And instead of throwing the ball to him, kind of just away from my body, I... He spat the ball at me. I picked it up and I flipped it up kind of towards myself in like a loop um, to then it, would, it was supposed to like come up and away and then go towards him. Um, I'm not sure how to describe this on a podcast. Long story short, he bit me in the face um, <laughs> um, because and I was so used to this was a, a way that I had reinforced Barley in the past where he will wait and he'll catch things and he loves catching things. Um, and Tobias, you know, as soon as the ball was in motion, the ball was in play and he went for it. Um, so I've got a nice picture of um, a good bloody gash on my chin. It wasn't that bad. Luckily, he got me like in the, you know, in the chin. It wasn't uh, nearly as bad of a face bite as face bites can be. But it's yeah. important. Yeah. Sometimes you learn the hard way and uh and once again, I, if you can tie it in, if you use any of sure. this, it, I, I, again, do not blame the dogs for these errors. No, uh, like, as you absolutely. mentioned, one of your dogs understood that cue. Mm-hmm. And your, for your other dog, that was a cue for something else. Yeah. And they're just reacting to the stimuli around them a lot of the time. And it's kind of our job to be like, oh, like I noticed with my dog that me reaching down for the toy on the ground was a, a very consistent cue for a, a big lunge bite. Mm-hmm. So we could call him possessive. We could call him whatever. But I just said, oh, every time I try to pick up a toy, um, this happens. And that's not safe mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. So what can I, you know, so that, like that, you can, things like that. Are, um, but yeah, in terms of actual, like, if you're going to let a serious biting dog bite something, you should practice first without your dog. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. I could talk to you about this all day, but we both have other things we need to go to. So thank you so much. If people wanted to find you online, where can they where can they track you down? Uh, good, good question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I teach online uh, scent detection courses um, primarily for clicker trainers. Mm-hmm. So the people that have some clicker training background uh, at uh, CyberDog Online. Uh, and that's for amateur sport detection mostly, but
But we've had a few other people come through and just learn what we're teaching because our, our secret, our secret um, motive is to just help people be better trainers. So, you know, so they can take the skills and then apply them to whatever field that they work in. Um, mm -hmm. And then I, I also teach for an online, um, it's called tromplo.com, T-R-O-M-P-L-O, tromplo.com. Um, and I have a course on that course called Masters of Odor. And that Ooh. is actually helping. Um, that one's we really focus on the locate to report phase, that locate phase, the, the body language of the dog and odor. Um, we focus really, really heavily on that. And oh, that sounds like a great course. Yeah. So they're both really good courses. One's just very, that very precise work, that back chaining to the alert, that heavy duty reinforcement. And the other one is uh, really exploring uh, the locate mode um, of the, the, the whole process. So. Very cool. Well, and we'll be sure to link to all of that in the show notes and I'll include the picture of me with the dog bite to the face and uh, <laughs> all that good stuff. So if you want to see any of that, you can find that over at canineconservationists.org. Um, you can also join our Patreon where we've got a learning um, video club where we share videos of, you know, troubleshooting your alert, troubleshooting sourcing, whatever's going on with you and your search dog. We'll work through it once a month and really also have a book club. Um, and again, all of that is over at canineconservationist.org. Until next time. Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.